You join us in the final minute of the UEFA Champions League final at Milan San Siro Stadium. Can FC Servette of Geneva hold out for another 30 seconds and lift the European trophy for the first time in their history? The ball travels up the right wing. Clichy beats his opponent and flashes a low cross across the six-yard area. Stefanovic slips his marker and slots home. Goal! It's all over and Servette lift their first ever Champions League trophy after an emphatic 17-3 victory over favourites, the mighty Real Madrid. They'll be celebrating long into the night across Geneva. Now, Michael, there are a number of things to unpack here. 17-3 is not a credible score. And where are you? It doesn't look much like the San Siro. No, that's true. I'm using a video games console in my youngest son's bedroom. Fortunately for me, he's at school or else I'd be in deep, deep trouble. As a mother of teenage kids, I understand your predicament. But that doesn't answer why Real Madrid lost 17-3. Come on, the Galacticos have won the Champions League 14 times. They're the most successful team in the history of the competition. Yeah, you're right. My opponent on the video game wasn't very good. I guess we all like to dream, to imagine that the impossible is somehow achievable. Like being the player winning the World Cup by scoring that last-minute penalty. There is a subtle distinction between dreams and fantasy, though, Michael. <laughs> yes, but that's the beauty <laughs> of video games. The only limit is your imagination. Yes, but even in the video gaming world, there are some rules that you need to respect. Or else there is no game. Correct. And some of those rules are trade rules. Welcome to the game episode of the Trade Goals podcast. My name is Antonia Carzaniga. In this installment, my colleague Michael Roberts and I will look at another way to play association football, but this time without even physically touching a ball or even leaving your house. We'll explain how playing the game in a virtual format brings together the different strands of trade law dealing with merchandise goods, services and intellectual property. So let's talk trade. To get the action underway, let's pass the games controller to our colleague Roy Santana. You'll remember him from episode two of the series about footballs. Thanks, Michael. As you can hear, football video games may be virtual, but you need physical goods to play them. You need the consoles, the controllers, and the screen. Video gaming has been with us for more than 50 years. During this time, the range of software and hardware has changed beyond all recognition, as have the games themselves and the economic value generated by them. A report by consultants PricewaterhouseCoopers estimates that total video games revenue reached $214.2 billion in 2021, and could reach as high as $321 billion by 2026. I asked Michael Roberts to speak to a group of gamers and discuss how hardware and software has changed during their playing careers. This was Michael's most challenging interview assignment yet. Thanks, Roy. It was definitely a hard talk. I started by asking the video game veterans to introduce themselves. Hello, my name is Melissa and I am nine years old. I have been playing since, like, I was four. That's when my dad bought a Switch. Next in line, we have... Tamara, 11 years old. I have quite a few years of experience with um, games on the Nintendo Switch. For instance, Zelda and uh, the Mario games. Who do we have next? Tobias, and I'm 14. I have about five years of 
experience with video games and yeah with the switch as well my name is dosan um, and i'm uh, 12. okay and dosan how long have you been playing oh like three years i uh, play on ps4 and i have a switch but i just use it on vacations with almost 20 years playing experience between them I asked our seasoned pros how video games have changed during their careers. The difference with FIFA 22 and FIFA 23, it's like mostly the transfers and different teams. Uh, like, for example, um, Sergio Mane, he, he changed teams. He went to uh, Bayern Munich. So in FIFA 23, he's in Bayern Munich. In FIFA 22, he's in Liverpool. I um, noticed that sometimes they made a second version. And then it seemed a bit more fun. It was a bit different. So they updated the games? Yeah. Okay. And what about the other things around it? Things like, you know, the, the mouses, the controllers, the consoles. Has that changed as well? Well, I noticed there's now, um, for the PS5, there's going to be um, a 3D... Um, like goggles? Yeah. Wow. And my father already pre-ordered them. So where do you play video games? Do you play them on a console? Do you play them on a computer? Do you play them on a phone? How do you play your games? Sometimes I play on my sister's phone. I play on my iPad. I play on the Switch and I play on the VR. Does your sister know that you're playing on with her phone? Sometimes. Okay, good. Dawson? Where are you playing? Are you playing on the computer, on the phone, on a console? How are you playing? I have a couple games on my phone, but I usually play on my uh, PlayStation or, yeah, PlayStation or phone. I don't use computer or Switch that much. I recently got uh, FIFA 23, and, like, since I kept telling my friends to come over and we play, like, every weekend... It's a really social activity. Yeah, it's fun. I asked one of the older pros to put the evolution of gaming in a bit of a historical context. There have been a lot of changes since the beginning of video games. The graphics and um, the way you play. And the way you play, how has that changed? So the controllers, the forms, those have changed a lot from... um, just a square with a, two buttons on them to like the controllers we know now. Our gamers point to some important trends that include the numerous gaming devices that there are out there. Each of these changes had had a knock-on impact on trade and trade policy. I can think of at least four instances where video games have a trade-related story. The first one has to do with the advent of new electronic devices including game consoles and portable devices as powerful as computers, which initially raised questions about how to classify them in the harmonized system. And as straighteners know very well, the classification dictates the import duties that have to be paid. Second, there was a question as to whether or not gaming devices should be included in the ambit of discussions to liberalize access to information technology products. A third issue has to do with the customs value of software including that preloaded on the device for customs purposes. And finally, there is a lively debate among WTO members about the current practice of not levying custom duties on electronic transmissions. So let's keep it simple and focus on the Information Technology Agreement. 
the Information Technology Agreement, or ITA as we call it, is an agreement that was concluded at the margins of the WTO's first ministerial conference in 1996. In fact, a few years ago, some participants decided to have an updated version of this agreement, and we now have two agreements, the ITA-1 and the ITA expansion. And both are plurilateral agreements, which means that not all 164 WTO members have signed it, even if all of them have benefited from them. The objective of the ITA is to liberalize trade in information technology products through the elimination of custom duties and other duties and charges on selected IT products and on a most favored nation basis. This MFN principle is a core WTO principle. In essence, it entails no discrimination between one's trading partners. If I offer a concession to one of them, I should then offer the same to all the others. Roy, can I ask you a question at this point? Were video game consoles covered by the ITA? Only computers, or in customs jargon, automatic data processing machines, were included in the original ITA in 1996, but dedicated video game consoles were not. This means that only those playing video games in their computers benefited initially from the tariff liberalization brought by the ITA. Trade in video game consoles has only liberalized when they were added in July 2015 to the ITA expansion together with other high-tech products such as new generation semiconductors called MCOs, GPS navigation equipment, and medical equipment such as magnetic resonance imaging products and ultrasonic scanning apparatus, amongst others. Video gamers may be faced with very different import duties and other import duties and charges depending on where they live. If they live in a country that signed to the ITA and the ITA expansion in 2015, then they are in video gaming paradise. The tariff will be zero both for computers and also for video consoles. If they live in a country that did not sign to the ITA expansion, but signed to the ITA-1 in 1996, then they probably have to pay often high tariffs for the video console, but not for the computers, which can be imported duty-free. If the country is not a participant to the ITA-1 or the ITA expansion, then the applied import duty can be quite high, up to 40% of the value of the good. This will obviously have a high impact in the final price to be paid by the consumers. Let's suppose you want to import a video console game, let's say a PS5 or an Xbox, and the price of this good, let's suppose, is $400. That means you will need to pay an additional $160 to be able to import this console. Today, a consumer can purchase a football Euro game like FIFA and others in one of three ways. First, it could be delivered as a DVD together with a new video game console a very popular bundle and Christmas gift, in case my wife is paying attention. Second, as a DVD either from a local shop or bought on the internet. Or third, as a software download directly from the EA Sports website. One interesting aspect with software is that the customs classification can change depending on the carrier media used to move it from one country to another. For example, the same software could be recorded in a semiconductor, like a game cartridge, a magnetic support, like one of those old floppy disks, an optical disk, such as a DVD, or more recently in a USB flash drive. The highest applied tariff on video game DVDs is 30%. But if the consumer downloads the software directly to its computer or video console, there is no good crossing the border, and in fact, some WTO members consider this download to be a service, no import declaration that has to be presented to customs, and then no import duty is paid. This is partly the result of a decision that goes back to the WTO's second ministerial conference in May 1998. 
At that conference, ministers agreed to continue the practice of not imposing customs duties on electronic transmissions, something that at the WTO we call the e-commerce moratorium. One particularity of this decision is that it is time-bound. It has been reviewed and renewed at successive ministerial conferences. Hey, Antonio. Did you know that Brazil has already been crowned FIFA world champions? Really? What's going on? Yeah, they were crowned world champions of the FIFA eSport football game. Wow, so there's a global championship for the video game as well as the physical game. The advent of the internet has revolutionised many aspects of the way that trade is conducted. This is especially so for services, many of which are increasingly traded cross-border over digital means. We're talking about the advent of eSports. Hi, uh, my name is Chester King. I'm the Chief Exec of the British Esports Federation. I sit on the IOC's, the Olympics Board for Esports and Gaming. Esports has emerged as a sporting activity in the past decade, led by gamers in Asia and the US, and some pretty iconic video gaming titles. Can you give us a rapid run-through of how this new sport has evolved and, and where we stand today? The definition of esports is organized competitive video gaming, and there's various categories. Some are known as a MOBA, so mobile online battle arena. So games like League of Legends has about 100 million, 110 million. Dota 2 is another one. Then you've got first-person shooter games like CSGO, Call of Duty is very famous, fighter games, Battle Royale, games like Fortnite, which has 300 million uh, players, and PUBG. And then you've got uh, sports video games, which includes FIFA and eFootball Pez. People, by the way, specialize in the different games, a bit like in sport, that a football player wouldn't play rugby, etc., like that. So it's become a medal event, but also the majority of esports tournaments are done for prize money. And some of these prize monies can range you know, from a few hundred thousand up to millions of pounds. The winning team of five players can win around $15 million. So it's been a huge kind of growth and it's kind of split, segmented into the various different esports categories. So if I understood correctly, esports as a category is broader than just sporting video games like FIFA or um, equivalent games for American football or basketball, etc. Yeah, so the term esports is competitive video gaming, and there's thousands of video games, but esports is always games of skill as opposed to games of chance. Virtual sports are a video game of the sport. So FIFA, eFootball pairs, for example, are a sports video game of football, and then you've got the sim racing games like Forza, F1, Gran Turismo, which are racing games. The sports video games, there's probably about six or seven of the 40. Uh, they're popular video games, but they're not the most popular esports. Esports teams are becoming an established feature of the sporting landscape. And these teams, are, well, as you've explained, with the prize money on offer, the teams are valuable and transfers between the teams are starting to look like those of the high-value players in other sports. What can you tell us about the, this development and, and where the players and teams are, are based? Each publisher who owns the esports title, they run uh, different kind of tournaments or leagues or competitions throughout the year. And basically, people create or own different teams. So what happens is you're now contracting individuals like a football team to play for your team, basically. And each team will have a coach, it'll have a nutritionist, it will have analysts. So normally a team of four or five players will have around 13 people around them. And then what you get is the transfer market. It took 100 years of football 
to get one million for a player transfer, which was Trevor Francis in 1979. In esports in 2018, there was a pro player uh, for a game called Honor of Kings, which is a big game over in Asia. It was a 1.2 million transfer deal. So that was in kind of like six to seven years. And what's interesting is a game called Rocket League, which is a fantastic esport, which is football in rocket powered cars. And Wolves Football Club have got a rocket team. David Beckham's got a Rocket League team. Um, we've actually got a Rocket League team with Williams Formula One. We are paying transfer fees of around $200,000 per player to move teams at the moment. So it's kind of really exciting where it's going. Ticket revenue is obviously important for mega sporting event organisers, but the higher public profile events tend to generate most revenue from the sale of broadcasting rights. So where, where does eSports fit in this continuum in terms of revenue sources? The majority of revenue is still sponsorship. So the bigger events which attract online viewerships, you know, you're selling sponsorship around that. There have been a couple of uh, exclusive broadcast deals, you know, one in particular, even though the viewership numbers are kind of crazy, it's a very kind of focused demographic. So what you tend to get is the live experience and the reason why the finals are live, and this is an important thing to understand, is when you're playing online, you have an issue uh, called the ping rate, the latency rate. So you could be in Paris and I could be in London, and depending where the server of that particular game is based, there could be an unfair advantage. So what you tend to have is the live finals have to happen because you're on the same stage with your people you're competing against. And albeit that you might only have 10 or 20,000 people in the room, you might have 50 to 100 million people watching online. Where then do association football, e-games, e-sport games fit within the universe of gaming? Is it more of a, an amateur game or is it uh, a professional specialising in it? Football esports is an unusual thing because they're very popular video games. The negative about them in, in the esports world is where as a spectator watching different esports, your experience watching other esports is incredibly enhanced because what happens when you're watching live, for example, Battle Royale or Call of Duty uh, as one in particular, as the spectator, not the player, you're seeing through walls, you're seeing what's happening, you're aware of the maps, you're knowing that actually they're going to go around the corner and one guy's going to face off with four other people. So there's a different atmosphere, whereas when you're watching someone playing a football video game, you're watching someone from a very limited view. It's, it's a different engagement. It's a better playing game than a watching game as an eSport. People like football play play FIFA, right? The problem is the prize money and isn't as big as the other esports. So just by that, it's immediately thought of as not a tier one esport, even though they're great video games. How do you see trade policy as supporting the further global development of esports? Are there any trade issues that you encounter in, in your operations? The main problem is visas. There's a lot of tournaments that happen where governments and countries don't recognize professionally sports as athletes right so if you're a football player pro football player you can get a visa to go into a country to play in a tournament and leave right we saw that unfortunately in the commonwealth where of the 30 countries coming over who'd qualified for the finals two countries weren't even allowed in which is just a huge disappointment for the players and for the organizers and for the fans you will recall michael and hopefully our faithful listeners will also remember 
that we discuss the international transfer of players in episode 4, even if we did not touch upon visa issues specifically. There is clearly more than one sort of player. And it is not only footballers, but also video game players that may need to travel abroad to provide their services. Still, it is striking that even in a quintessentially digital environment as the one for video games, the ability to be physically present in a foreign market is essential to provide certain kinds of services. In fact, we saw this very vividly during the COVID-19 pandemic. Trading services that require suppliers and consumers to be in physical proximity, such as watching a live football match in a foreign country, came almost to a halt at the peak of the pandemic. At the same time, however, trade in digitally delivered services grew very quickly in COVID times, with exports increasing by over 30% between 2019 and 2021. The pandemic also highlighted pre-existing concerns about equity in access to the internet and the ability to participate in trade in digitally supplied services. These concerns come together in the expression the digital divide. This is one significant break on the uptake of online services, including video gaming. I asked Michael to speak to Brendan Vickers at the Commonwealth Secretariat. They discuss the digital divide in the context of esports and what role trade and trade policy can play in closing this gap. The inaugural Commonwealth Esports Championships and Commonwealth Esports Forum was staged as a demonstration event during the 2022 Commonwealth Games. And Malaysia emerged as the most successful team with three gold medals. Malaysia is also a star performer in the ITU's digital connectivity statistics. Fully 95% of households there had access to the internet in 2021. What can you tell us about how digital connectivity varies across the 56 members of the Commonwealth? We see very stark differences in internet access and internet usage between our developed countries, our developing countries and our least developed country members. So in developed countries, 91% of the population have access to the internet. But when you look at developing countries, this is around 43%. The numbers for me are especially worrying. If we look at our Commonwealth LDCs, there are 14 of these countries in the Commonwealth. On average, three quarters of the population in these countries are offline. So there's also very stark differences in affordability. This is such an important issue. Last year, two gigabytes of mobile broadband data cost on average 16 times more in our LDC members compared to developed country members, and nearly twice as much compared to developing countries. And as we know, in this digital divide, women and girls especially are disproportionately impacted. How do you see the digital divide affecting the ability of Commonwealth esports players to make the most of their digital talents? Mm. Very challenging. Um, Overall, about half the Commonwealth's population is still offline. So this means there's no esports, there's no telemedicine, there's no online learning, and there's no digital trade or e-commerce for them. Uh, And I think this is a really big challenge, as I said, because 60% of our population in the Commonwealth is under the age of 30 years. So they're young, they're vibrant, they're dynamic, they're entrepreneurial, but the digital divide is holding back their prospects and opportunities and participation in this growing area of esports. What role do you see trade and trade policy playing in terms of levelling the competition playing field, both for esport competition and participation in digital trade more generally? So I think there's some basics to getting people online. It's things like affordable broadband, reasonably priced ICT hardware and ICT services, and just think about all those boxes and consoles for esports. 
uh, investment in digital infrastructure. Increasingly, we're seeing the need for power generation and especially through renewable energy. Esports just don't work in an environment of unpredictable electricity blackouts or lack of access to energy. Um, and then even even telecoms regulations to ensure affordability. So I think there's a there's a definite role for trade and trade policies in all these issues. In some of our Commonwealth countries, especially our least developed members, digital technologies are, are all available, but they are often just too expensive for much of the population to access. If we think about things like high import tariffs on hardware, including the equipment for developing and implementing broadband networks, uh, this really creates further barriers to digitalization and participation uh, in, in the digital economy. In Africa, where I'm from, uh, around 60% of internet users connect using mobile devices while the remaining use laptops and personal computers. And if we look at the entry prices for these devices, even secondhand devices, they range from around 35 to 45 US dollars, which is equivalent to almost 80%, 80% of monthly wages in some African countries. There's no doubt that if we can close this digital divide, we can produce major gains, especially uh, the growth in capacity for digitally deliverable services. This is such a real untapped opportunity for developing countries. The digital divide is an issue that attracts a lot of attention also in the WTO, particularly when members discuss electronic commerce. When you hear this word, many of you will no doubt think about online purchases that end up as doorstep deliveries in cardboard boxes. However, the discussions at the WTO on this issue are actually most intense with regard to services that are traded online across borders. A lot of these became familiar during the COVID-19 lockdowns, Which reminds me, my online yoga class is starting soon. But first, I will see my colleague Wolf Meyer-Evert, counselor in the WTO's Intellectual Property, Government Procurement and Competition Division. He will certainly make his point about how IP is more important in football than services. Hi, Wolf. Do you want to do an online yoga class with me? Ah, uh, maybe not today. I'd rather focus my energy on discussing how intellectual property interacts with football in the video game world. You'd be doing the listeners a service if you did. But, you know, many services, especially digital ones, do really need to respect IP in order to deliver. I assume you want to talk about how the WTO agreement on trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights settled the argument about whether or not computer programs are covered by copyright law. Precisely. The TRIPS agreement determined that computer programs in languages that only computers can read, so machine-readable strings of ones and zeros, must be protected as literary works. At a stroke, the TRIPS agreement put an end to decades of complex debate about whether and how computer programs can and should be protected as forms of intellectual property. Michael had an interesting talk about the role of IP in football with JJ Shaw, a senior associate at the law firm Lewis Silkin in London. Let's listen in. One way to play association football is in the form of a video game. JJ, can you run us through the different forms of intellectual property that you see embedded in video games? Certainly. So, I mean, looking at a typical video game in terms of the tools used to develop the game, its content, the sound and visuals and how it's branded and even the hardware it's played on, you might see a video game as essentially a bundle of different IP rights all coming together to form the whole. Now, different countries will have their own domestic IP laws, which is always something really complex for game developers to think about when they release these games on an international basis. Perhaps the most relevant form of IP embodied in a game is copyright. Now, copyright can subsist within um, original literary, dramatic, musical or artistic works, as well as sound recordings, films or even broadcasts. And for a work to be protected by copyright, 
the key requirement is that it must be original, meaning the author or developers created the work through their own skill or labor without copying it from someone else. And so in a typical video game, copyright will therefore cover things like uh, the underlying software or code in the game that, that forms part of a literary work, artwork, images or music that appear within the game, text appearing on screen, and even the gameplay itself. So JJ, as you've mentioned, um, for video game developers, it's quite a complex IP environment. Are there any additional complexities to developing sports video games? So Perhaps the primary complexity revolves around the fact that the clubs, the leagues, the governing bodies and the athletes are the owners of their own valuable IP. And featuring this within the game is what gives those top sports games that unique feeling of authenticity, allowing players to immerse themselves in the most realistic environments. So here we're talking about club names, kits and crests, official league and tournament names and branding, trophies, and of course, the image rights of the players themselves. So developers who want to feature these within a game will need to enter into this complex network of official licensing arrangements with these uh, relevant rights holders to obtain the rights to feature these within the game. I think sports rights holders, and by that I probably refer to clubs in particular, are notoriously hot on any games which use their name or branding without a license in place. So, Antonia, did JJ convince you that IP is really at the heart of the football eSport value chain? Here's an interesting fact for you, Wolf. If you've played a video game, you've interacted with artificial intelligence. The most common role that AI is used for is controlling so-called non-player characteristics. Say you're playing a football video game. Your goalkeeper throws a ball to a defender. Well, if it's Manuel Neuer, he uses his feet, Antonia. Yes, that's right. German national team goalkeepers like to keep their gloves clean when they play against Italy. All the better for making sure that the ball doesn't get dirty when they have to look for it in the back of their goal. It's not going to happen at this World Cup. So, as I was saying, the ball is thrown out by the goalkeeper to the defender in the video game. What then does the opposition player who is closest to the ball do? Does the opponent try to tackle the player with the ball? stop the pass or run after him. These are just three possible scenarios. In practice, there are many more options that the people designing the software must consider. For example, what will the crowd do? Will they jump up and down? What commentary should be used? What crowd noise, etc., etc. Artificial intelligence raises some interesting questions from an IP perspective. And from a services one too and issues about cross-border data transfers are starting to come up in the WTO committees. If I think back to the Services Council meetings held in recent years, there were questions raised about some members' measures regarding data flows that other members considered overly trade-restrictive, for instance. You know, AI is a tool that can help the innovation process or can constitute a feature of an invention. It's clear now that the role of AI in the invention process is increasing, and recently, there have been cases in which the applicant has named an AI mechanism as the inventor in a patent application. So I guess the question becomes, if an AI program can create new content, then what is creativity and who is the creator when it's an AI program? If you wanted to compare this episode to a football game, then it would be like the last minute when one team is desperately looking for an equalizer and the chance to win in extra time or on penalties. So we've thrown it all up in the opposition half and kicked a virtual ball at it. Merchandise goods, services and intellectual property, 
Yes, and we've come out with an AI gravy. That's not gravy, that's a sophisticated sauce. So let's blow the whistle now before your gravy boils over. Good idea. Join us in our next episode on trade goals as we look at disputes and the people who resolve them. Join us for the Rules and Referees edition.